We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Yo, what's up, Roto-Grinders, and welcome to the finale of Sharp DFS Analysis here on Roto-Grinders.com. My name is Chris Gimino, and I am joined by two guys I'm very thankful to have joined us for the balance of the season, talking NFL DFS from a Vegas and advanced analytics standpoint. We've got first from 444football.com, Chris Raybon. Chris, what's going on? What's going on, guys? Uh, kind of a bittersweet moment because I uh, enjoyed the show all season long, but I am definitely excited to talk about these games this week, and I think they're four really good games. I think this is one of probably the best weekend of the NFL season. Yeah, it's going to be some good football games on. There's going to be some great DFS action, so looking forward to breaking that down in just a few moments. Also joining us uh, from sharpfootballanalysis.com and sharpfootballstats.com, Warren Sharp. Warren, what's happening? Hey, uh, like Chris said, this is my favorite weekend of the NFL calendar because you've got literally the four best teams they put in the hard work all 17 weeks earned their buy they're not rejoining the playoff field you got the four teams that were lucky enough to advance out of the wild card round uh it's definitely you know 
It's the last week and we have four games and it's the most exciting of the week uh, of the season, in my opinion. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, Warren, really appreciate you joining us here on the show this week. And this in this season, we've had a lot of great insights from both you and Chris throughout the season. Overall, when you take a look back at what we were trying to do, starting our shows with strategy, trying to break things down from a different perspective, you know, how do you think we did? And what do you think we've learned from the season as far as this show was concerned? Yeah, I, uh, you know, when I was first approached uh, in the offseason about doing a show like this with you guys, um, I thought there was so much that we could share, you know, because I don't think that there was a, a really like DFS or even, you know, season long fantasy show that also incorporated a lot of the sports betting angles to it and, and with real, you know, sports betting insight from, you know, whether it's inside information, whether it's what the betting groups have done, whether it's why lines have moved or will they move. And then I think, you know, that segment you talked about at the beginning, which was our ability to kind of teach a little bit uh, to those people who are listening, the audience about uh, some things related to sports betting or just analytics in general as they relate to DFS and metrics that we like to use or don't like to use, trending data. Like there's so much that we covered on here. Um, I thought it was a, a really strong success. Uh, we've received a lot of positive feedback about the show. Um, and I will say, you know, I, I don't think it would be the same way that it, it was if uh, Chris Raybon didn't join us. Um, so I think he brought like a great angle to it, a ton of insight to it every single week. So uh, even that week that he was down in Cancun, I think it was. Uh, so, you know, he didn't show up, you know, drunk or hung over. He was on point, you know, ready to attack. So, uh, I think it's been a, a great year, you know, year one perhaps of, of more, but um, I think it was a great uh, season and hopefully people learned a lot from it. Um, I know speaking just for myself, you know, researching, preparing for the show, uh, did a lot of research before that just for everything that I do in general, but there were other elements that I researched specifically for the show. So it helped me, you know, made me a little bit uh, more intelligent about, some of the topics that we were going to discuss on here. So it helped me out as well, but enjoyed uh, sharing some insight with everybody. Yeah, I think the thing that I like the most about this show is I hear a lot of talk specific to DFS all week. People are talking plays. People are touting, essentially. People are out there saying who they like and don't like. And they're factoring some of the things that are related to site pricing and some of the things that are specific to DFS. I, Chris, I like that we focused a lot on what's just going on from a football perspective and analytics perspective. And maybe – you can talk real quickly about just how those two things are kind of interrelated. Like ultimately we can make good decisions about the DFS specific topics just based on how we think the games are going to go, how we think we can find insights from Vegas and how we think we can find insights from data and analytics. Yeah, I think, you know, you really hit on it, both of you guys, where uh, what I really like about it is that we're kind of with Warren bringing that, that, angle in terms of how the betting markets are thinking and how the, the odds makers are thinking, the sharp betters are thinking. And, 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 all, and we were able to really step inside the minds of, 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 of that, which is something that a lot of people use in DFS blindly. And then also just all three of us talking about, as you mentioned, Chris, the, the, the way game script is going and really trying to put ourselves in the minds of these head coaches, but not just stopping there and saying, okay, this is what we think the coaches are going to do. And that's why we should play a guy in DFS, but saying, well, this is what we think the coach is going to do, but now will they actually do it? You know, and, 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 and kind of just putting ourselves in all these different minds. Whereas probably, I guess, you know, starting out in DFS, you're kind of more just thinking in terms of just, okay, who do I need to play and, and why, and who's a good value and that's it. And it's really a lot deeper than that. And kind of those 
alternative angles and thought processes have really helped me a lot. And, you know, I'm really thankful for both of you guys. You know, Warren, I was always a big fan of even before we ever did this show yet. He put out a great uh, season preview uh, every year. He puts it out every year. And uh, I thought it was a really great, great work. And, you know, just kind of learning from that and kind of boiling football back down to its essentials of just, okay, you know, what's a team going to do, you know, on, on each down and how's that going to affect the game um, has really helped me uh, in my DFS game. So really enjoyed this all year talking to you guys and uh, um, learned a lot. And it, that's hard to do at this point when you spend so much time sometimes, uh, it, you know, researching in, in, in a specific field, uh, a lot of times it becomes harder and harder to, to find, you know, people that you can talk with or, or, or that can challenge you or you can learn from. So I'm glad that I found that with you guys here on the show. Excellent. And again, thanks for joining us, Chris. It's been awesome. So enough with the look back at what's happened so far this season. We do have four games that we need to break down and do it one more time before we call it quits for the season. Uh, when I take a look at the games, I'm just going to go to Sharp Football analysis.com go game by game through the lines here and we'll really start to try to break down these matchups and see if we can find some insights to deliver to the people yet again starting in Philadelphia where it's the Falcons uh coming to town against the Eagles led by Nick Foles of course now that Carson Wentz has been out for several weeks for the season it's a 41 total as it sits right now on pinnacle uh the Falcons are uh coming in as favorites which is rare so Warren let's talk about that for just a second have you ever seen the number one seed coming in as a dog at home. No, uh, this is definitely the first time that's ever happened. Actually, uh, went back, uh, I have a database back to 19, nine, uh, 1978, and, um, and I think they expanded the playoff field right around that time to six teams. So around about that time, once they expanded it to six teams, uh, it's, it's never before seen um, a divisional round, or any round for that matter, where a number one seed was favored, uh, sorry, was an underdog at home to a number six seed. So this is the first time that that has happened. Um, and, you know, the odds makers, what they opened this at, uh, you know, the very first books opened it at one and a half or two and a half, um, and then it quickly got bet up. Now, some of that was people taking Atlanta, thinking that the game was going to close three, which it's three right now as we record this on Friday. Um, and the game obviously is tomorrow afternoon. So uh, about you know, not, not, not even more than a day away. Um, and will we see some money come back on Philadelphia to drop this below the field goal or will that be where it closes? Time will tell. Um, the public does have more of a say this round. Um, as we get into the postseason. you know, the public, uh, before I've kind of touted the fact that the public doesn't do as much as people think they do when they see lines moving around throughout the course of the week. Uh, that's basically sharp groups moving those lines and guys on one side or the other, not all the sharp groups are going to agree. I mean, these are things that we discussed earlier in the year and you guys probably know by now, but uh, with regard to the postseason, that's when, you know, there's fewer games, everybody's focused. There's st every single game is a standalone game. So um, with the money that the public is pouring in on every single one of these games, they will affect the line a little bit more. And the public right now is, is of course, coming in on the Atlanta Falcons here. And uh, so, yeah, it is unprecedented for sure. Yeah, interesting situation. Now, from an offensive perspective here, if we start talking about the Philadelphia Eagles, Sands Carson Wentz going against this Atlanta defense, uh, where have you kind of started to break down this team and start to measure whether or not, you know, certainly, I, you know, I'm not going to ask you to choose sides here as far as who's going to win this game. But when you look at the Philadelphia Eagles offense, do you think that they can have success against the Falcon defense? 
I do. Um, I, I don't want to say that the Phil- – look, the Atlanta Falcons' defense is strong in many ways, Where whereas, you know, heading into the season, we thought they might be – they might take, take a step forward. But they were a pretty poor defense. They had holes last year. They still have some holes this year. They're not they're – not, it's, it's not impossible to exploit these guys a little bit. Um, but they're much more fundamentally sound, especially on the back end, it, preventing more explosive plays and uh, keeping the game in front of them, so to speak. The big deal to me, the, the matchup I think that's going to find this, especially when we talk about the Eagles offense, is third down efficiency. And Carson Wentz was like out of this world, otherworldly. I mean, just whatever superlatives you want to heap on the guy for a rookie quarterback to be able to convert 38% of third and 10 or more is, is ridiculous. I mean, the NFL average was down to 21%, uh, and he was converting 38% of those. He had a passer rating of, I believe it was 138 on those third and 10 plus uh, pass plays. Um, even just on any third down, he posted a 128 passer rating and a 50% success rate. Both of those were the best in the NFL. So he was just so good on third down. My fear and what I think that the Philadelphia Eagles absolutely must do here is stay on schedule, be productive enough on the early downs to avoid those third and very long situations because um, I really think if they get into those that as much as I want to say, you know, and, and this will be a refrain that I might repeat when we talk about the Jacksonville Jaguars, like the last game or two that we saw out of Nick Foles and the last game that we saw out of Blake Bortles, they might step up here a little bit more than what we would expect and play a little bit better. Like it's impossible. First of all, it's impossible for Blake Bortles to play worse, but uh, so we have to assume he'll play a little bit better in Pittsburgh, but Nick Foles, you know, my main concern here is that the three teams that he started against the giants, the Raiders and the Cowboys, those teams are basically all three bottom five, third down teams and the Eagles offense struggled converting third downs against those bottom three third down defenses. The Atlanta Falcons are basically a middle of the pack third down defense. So it's going to be very difficult, but they need to get, uh, need to have uh, the, the uh, Nick Foles and that offense stay out of third and very long. And then I think the Philadelphia Eagles have a very good shot at pulling out the outright upset. I feel like Aguilar could be a big part if they get into third and shorter situations, converting on those third down situations, Chris. So if you are thinking the Eagles have success on offense, I think that that's a decent player to put a bet on in DFS this week. What do you think, uh, first of all, about the Eagles offense, but then I'd like you to talk a little bit about the Atlanta side because I think one of the best matchups in the whole day is there. Yeah, so with the Eagle offense, I think the key for them is – going to be how well and how effectively they can move the ball when throwing to their interior receivers. Because if you look at what happened with Nick, when you, when you, with the transition from Carson Wentz to Nick Foles, the perimeter receivers, Alshon Jeffrey and Torrey Smith kind of fell off a cliff in terms of production. So Alshon Jeffrey from Carson Wentz had uh, a 97.5 rating when targeting Jeffrey, eight touchdowns, no picks, uh, and uh, 49% completion rate. So Jeffrey wasn't actually very efficient on a per-target basis in terms of catching the ball, but he made up for it with with touchdown grabs, still averaged 6.9 yards per target. So, you know, just enough to kind of be an effective uh, option on the outside. But under Nick Foles, only a 37.5% completion rate and – a 45.6 passer rating targeting Jeffrey. Then you, on the other side, you had Torrey Smith. Now with Carson Wentz, 
Torrey Smith's 87.5 rating when Wentz targeted him. So, you know, even though he kind of disappeared for stretches, it was still when he was actually targeted, it was decent. You know, it worked out a little bit. Carson, uh, Nick Foles, three of 13 when targeting Torrey Smith in a small sample. And uh, that's a 39.6 rating. That's the same as just throwing it out of bounds. But Nelson Aguilar, on the other hand, Carson Wentz had a 110.7 rating targeting Aguilar. Nick Foles, 107. And uh, Zach Ertz, uh, to a lesser extent, 112.8 from Wentz, 83.2 from Foles. Still decent, you know, 69% completions, 6.4 yards per target, a little low. But, you know, if, if, the, if the Eagles are able to, to hit on those throws, which is going to still be tough because the Falcons do have a lot of team speed in, that, in the middle with those linebackers and whatnot. But uh, I think that Brian Poole, the slot corner, if they play man coverage on Aguilar, Brian Poole allowing an 84% catch rate this season. That's extremely high. So they're going to give up some stuff uh, underneath. And I think Aguilar and, and Ertz will be the key. But I also think you're going to see Jay Ajayi get the highest touch total of the season in this game. If, 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 if you might recall, in Week 17, they rested some starters. They played full. They actually rested Ajayi, and they let Garrett Blunt go out there. And Corey Clement played a little bit. Smallwood played a lot more. But that kind of shows that Ajayi is a guy that they want to keep healthy. They're probably going to give him a huge workload. I think they want to control the game with him. And then on the other side of the ball, uh, for Atlanta, you know, this is a very fascinating game. I think because Atlanta really needs to win this game. They really need to avenge that choke job that they pulled in the Super Bowl. And if they win this game, they're in the NFC Championship and they have a chance to go right back to the Super Bowl. So they need to win this game. But I think it's going to be difficult for them to do so because, number one, uh, Bill Simmons actually pointed out an interesting stat. And it it's obviously doesn't you know pertain pr- particularly to Atlanta, but – uh, I believe it's that dome teams are like four and 23 in the playoffs all time when playing outdoors in like a 35 degree or colder situation. And it, the, the forecast last time I looked was around 34. So it's just a reminder that this is not a gimme just because Atlanta, you know, is coming off a strong win against LA. Now they're going into this team without a, without their starting quarterback. It's not a gimme for Atlanta on the road. Like let's remember if Farrell Cooper doesn't fumble those two uh, that punt and that kickoff last week, we're talking about a totally different game because the, you know, the Rams would have probably been within one score. They could have, they could have probably tied the game at least on, on that final possession. Um, and it could have been a whole different game. So I don't think that, you know, just because Atlanta scored 26 points and kind of one going away against the Rams that, that they should even be favored in this game. I, I think at worst it's a pick them, but as Warren mentioned, you know, the public influences this a lot more. And there's actually an article that I uh, referenced in my DraftKings write-up this week on 4 for 4. It's not behind the paywall. It's in the intro, so you guys can check it out on my Twitter if you want. But they interviewed a odds maker in Westgate in Vegas, actually. And he was saying, like, yeah, this game should have been a pick but the public is going to is going to bet at Atlanta at, at, at three, so why put it at a pick We're just going to leave it at Atlanta plus three, um, minus three for the, uh, because of the recency bias and whatnot. So it's going to be a tough game. But a couple of things to note on the Atlanta side of the ball. Number one, Philadelphia allowing 10.1 targets per game to number one wide receivers. That's per football outsiders. So if there was ever a game where Julio Jones was going to see a lot of volume, this should be the game. However, Atlanta, um, Philadelphia also, despite Patrick Robinson having a pretty good um, uh, PFF rating and whatnot, they've given up some, a lot of production to slot receivers as well. So I think Muhammad Sanu is another player that's going to factor in heavily, but I think that, Atlanta, I worry about Atlanta a little bit. And I, that's the reason I give Philly a really good shot at this game is because 
I don't know if Atlanta's going to be able to run the ball as well as they have in the past. Philadelphia is the number three run defense in terms of DVOA, and Devontae Freeman outdoors has been a lot less effective than he has been when he's able to make those cuts on that field turf in the dome in Atlanta outdoors in his career Freeman averaging only 3.9 yards per carry compared to 4.6 when he's indoors in Atlanta uh, or indoors period actually and um and 9.9.0 yards per reception indoors but only 7.1 outdoors so Freeman actually becomes at least from his efficiency metrics more of like a replacement level player when he's outdoors. And I know he's obviously a great player, but outdoors, some of his effectiveness is sapped. So I do worry about that for Atlanta, but I, I, I kind of favor the passing game options, particularly the wideouts, uh, Jones and Sanu. Yeah, great stuff there on the Atlanta offense. Um, interesting to see what the forecast ends up. If it is, it's really warm right now in Philadelphia. If it stays that trend, I mean, you know, that could help the Falcons a little bit. But like, I think the most interesting thing is that, you know, you mentioned you know, both you and Warren, the Falcons are kind of getting pumped up by the public here in this spot. So it's an interesting game, both from a real-life perspective and a football and betting perspective, just in terms of the line here. I'm not sure exactly what will happen, but I am uh, definitely going to have some exposure to this game in DFS. Moving on to the New England-Tennessee spot here, Warren. The Patriots are almost two touchdown favorites over the Titans, the 48 total. And when I look at how the offense operates, for the New England Patriots, how the defense operates for the Tennessee Titans. This is a Titan defense has been limited in its ability to allow explosive plays. So since they've been pretty good against the run too, I would expect any offense that can move the ball methodically through the air would have an advantage over them. And guess what? It's Tom Brady and the New England Patriots, uh, pretty much the experts in moving the ball methodically through the air. So I am pretty much looking at this as a situation where Brady should be the chalk and probably will be. How do you feel about Brady? Yeah, I, I think that's justifiable, um, and I think that is the right thing. Look, there's a, a huge – if we're talking about the Patriots side of the ball, when they're on offense, there is a massive, massive mismatch. Um, and it comes, it comes down to exactly what you said. They have the number one ranked passing offense in terms of efficiency, and they're facing the Titans offense, which ranks 24th in passing efficiency defense – sorry, the Titans defense ranks 24th. They also rank and are trending worse 29th over the last month of the season, but they face the fourth easiest schedule of opposing pass defenses. So it's a Titans team that really hasn't played very many strong opponents. Now they're playing the number one team. Their defense, pass defense is already bad. And if you look at um, the competition that the, in terms of passing defenses, sorry, passing offenses that this Titans defense has faced, we'll go back to like starting at week four. From week four to week 14, they basically played nobody that even ranked above like 20th in the NFL, except for one team, and that was Ben Roethlisberger, the Steelers. They put up uh, 40 points on them. Now, week four, they played the 24th-ranked Houston Texans, but that was when Houston had Deshaun Watson, one of his you know first home starts, and Deshaun Watson put up, I think it was 57 points in total in that game. Um, he didn't do it all through the air, but he had a very good passer rating, and performed extremely well uh, as dual threat. They put up 57 points against this um, Tennessee defense. Apart from that, they played a bunch of trash, a bunch of garbage quarterbacks, a bunch of garbage passing offenses. Until the last month of the year, basically, if you go to like Kansas City and work back that game plus the three before that, toss out the game where Blake Bortles played them and it meet, meant absolutely nothing to Jacksonville. They said they were going to try to play uh, hard and, and do well, but they obviously did not. And um, I don't know how much exact prep they went into that game and what their overall strategy was at this point. So forget that game. 
They allowed uh, Jimmy Garoppolo. He completed 72% of his passes back in week 15 in his first home start, a 107 rating, 381 passing yards. Um, they played uh, – the, the, I'll call him the road Jared Goff. As we know, Jared Goff was a little bit better at home than he was on the road. And the road Jared Goff still threw uh, four touchdowns on him. He passed for a 114 passer rating and had a uh, 51% success rate. And then last week, we saw what Kansas City did. And again, this game, I'm going to say it's the first half Kansas City because once they lost Travis Kelsey, this passing offense, I mean, without their best weapon, their most diverse weapon, uh, they couldn't really get much done. And even in the first half, you could see that um, Tyreek Hill was like dropping passes, like passes that he should have caught on the first and second series. There's just like dropping them. He, he really didn't have a very good game overall in terms of like, being on the same page with Smith or head in the game or something. Um, and when you lost uh, Travis Kelsey, this offense, passing offense to an extent, went a little bit kaput. But in the first half, Alex Smith, a 138 passer rating, 10 yards per pass attempt, two touchdowns, no interceptions. This is the pass defense. Like, these are not anomalies. The games that I'm throwing out here are the only times that Tennessee actually has faced a good passing defense. They played the easiest schedule. I'm sorry, a good passing offense. They played the easiest schedule of opposing passing offenses um, during that stretch from week four to the end of the year. So uh, I think it's personal, uh, perfectly reasonable to suggest that Rob Gorkowski is going to dice him up whenever Tom Brady wants to utilize him. Um, I think that there's a big edge that they have in throwing the football to the running backs. Uh, that was another big weakness that uh, Tennessee had in terms of how they performed against opposing running backs out of the backfield. I've got a bunch of numbers. I won't throw them out because I'm already going on long enough for my spot here. But they, they have a big edge in throwing the ball to running backs in this game as well. It looks like their receiving core is healthy. The main thing that the, the, way, the main way that Tennessee could try to foil this game plan is with a strong pass rush. If they can somehow get strong enough pass rush on Tom Brady to prevent him from attempting the deep shots that he'll try to mix in there, um, that could foil this the game plan overall a little bit because they are a very good run defense. And while the Patriots have a good run offense, um, typically what New England likes to do, they'll start out the first series and second series running the ball a little bit. If that doesn't work, work well, they're just going to abandon it. They basically like stick a page in the book, a bookmark, shut that book, shelve it for the next round, and they'll start letting Tom Brady just attack these guys through the air. And that's typically what they do against teams that have a significant deficiency. I was on Twitter quoting the art of war. I mean, it's the easiest path to success. Um, and, and that's, you know, uh, I won't even bring in those quotes, but bottom line is Bill Belichick, the Patriots are great at doing that. Attack the opponent's weakness and don't stop. Whereas a team like the Steelers, which we'll talk about in a minute, they kind of do what we do, you know, let our players make plays. Let's do what we do. And they really, we're going to talk about what they need to do here. The Patriots have a clear advantage throwing the football. Um, if that run game doesn't work out well early, they are going to turn to that. And I think they're probably going to have a lot of success. Cause we're going to see the Tennessee Titans uh, have high ownership for Derek Henry on FanDuel specifically this week. When you talk about his price point against the New England Patriots, uh, I have, some concerns as far as the flow of this game for a guy like Henry, but I'm not, I don't have concerns for the price point and his potential usage in the offense, but the flow of this game, do you think that that's a mistake for people to be using Derrick Henry? Or do you think that there's some chance that he can get involved in this game, regardless of game script? I think that from a purely 
numbers-based standpoint, if you just kind of project Derrick Henry and look at his value, um, compare, like given the volume you expect him to get and look at his value compared to some of the other running backs, it does make sense on FanDuel, but I'm kind of with you. I don't really feel good about Henry in this game. I don't think I'm going to play him in cash games because on FanDuel, you know, we, we talk about this all the time. You need touchdowns on FanDuel. And this uh, this kind of a similar situation as last week where you have a bottom three uh, team in terms of run defense DVOA, but uh, a lot of things had to go right last week for the Titans to kind of climb back in that game. You know, Travis Kelsey getting hurt, and then, you know, the Chiefs only have three drives in the second half, and, you know, the Titans are able to kind of climb back in it and, and still feed Derrick Henry. I think, I think that the Patriots have a much bigger, uh, even bigger advantage than the Chiefs on, on offense over the Titans. Uh, and I think that it's going to be a struggle. I don't think Derrick Henry is a good bet for a touchdown. I think that at $100 more, a guy like Latavius Murray is actually a far better bet for a touchdown at home against a, 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 a Saints defense that's a little weaker against the, the run and stronger against the pass. And also, I think Henry, you know, he's been, he's been uh, very, you know, kind of buoyed by explosive plays. And that's great. But I think that kind of sets up, for me anyway, more for a tournament type of play because, you know, he's already had, the, I think, like a, a 60-yard screen. In the, in the last two weeks, he's had like a 60-yard screen pass and like another 30-yard catch. And that's not something that you can expect every day. He, he had the long touchdown run, which that, that's kind of his forte, but also not something that you can just reasonably pro- project. So if, like, if, he does, if they limit the explosive plays, um, which you know, is, is reasonable to expect, um, then, then you're looking at a situation where Henry could end up with you know, 60 yards and no touchdowns, and it, it, it would be kind of ugly. So I'm not, I'm not really feeling – Henry, I think that the I think that he, he's going to regress, and I think that this is the time. You know, uh, double two touchdown road underdog. This is a situation that we, you just try to avoid with running backs if you can help it. And I think there are some other options this week in a similar price point where you don't have to uh, put in Henry just because he's he's a cheaper play. So that that's kind of where I'm at with with Henry. I I prefer on this offense. I think Eric Decker is kind of the play that I want on this offense. I think, I think that uh, the Patriots defense is, is just as liable to outscore every single Titan skill position player um, in this game. I'm expecting just a smash for the Patriots. I think it's just a coaching mismatch in addition to a talent mismatch. When you're talking about Bill Belichick, Josh McDaniels and Matt Patricia, the latter two of whom are each pretty much the top two head coaching candidates on the market right now, going against Mike Malarkey and his exotic smash trash or whatever the hell you call it. Um, you know, just like, I just think it's a crazy mismatch. I, I want I, I think the Patriots defense is the best play over the Steelers. I, I, I don't think that, that the Steelers defense, uh, the Jaguars offense necessarily sets up as a, a team you want to attack with defenses as much as the narrative surrounding Blake Bortles is that he's, you know, terrible and that he can't do anything. I think you still want to attack this, this Titans offense where Marcus Mariota, you know, all these new weapons are supposedly, you know, pass offense that he was going to have this year through 15 interceptions and 13 touchdowns. Now they're going on the road as two touchdown underdogs in Foxborough, to a better coach team that's been rested. Like I, I'm not very bullish on this Titans offense. I just think Decker has a good matchup against uh, whoever New England's going to put out slot corner, whether it's Eric Rowe or uh, Jonathan Jones. Those those two guys have been uh, giving up far more production than have the outside cornerbacks Gilmore and Malcolm Butler. And I expect the Patriots to pretty much 
put Gilmore and Butler on Corey Davis and Richard Matthews kind of lock those guys down and then focus on just taking away uh, Delaney Walker. And, you know, if, if, I think they'll let Decker get, you know, single coverage. And if he beats him, he beats him, get some, you know, get some underneath catches, he gets them. So that's kind of where I'm at with the Titans offense, not really feeling very good about it at all. Your New England Patriots, 32nd in the National Football League in yards allowed per drive. Plenty willing to let you go up and down the field. Sixth in points per drive. Not as easy to score those touchdowns that you're going to need on a site like FanDuel. So not really liking the Derrick Henry play this week, especially at high ownership. Let's talk about the next game, Warren. It is the Pittsburgh Steelers, Jacksonville Jaguars, a very interesting contest. It is the Steelers' big home favorites. Uh, total looks to be 41 and a half at this moment. So let's talk about it right now. It's Antonio Brown coming back, missing practice today, last I saw, but not so sure I'm going to put any stock or weight into that just yet. We'll have to wait and see. Otherwise, though, you know, the Jacksonville defense has been one of the better defenses we've seen in recent seasons. The Pittsburgh offense has been one of the better offenses we've seen in recent seasons. So we saw this matchup earlier in the season. What's going to be different? Um, hopefully the Steelers have learned a little bit from their mistakes uh, last go around. Uh, look, the Steelers were up three to nothing after the first quarter. They ran 60 offensive plays from the second through the fourth quarter. Only nine of those 60 plays were laving on Bell runs. 46 of them, I believe, were Ben Roethlisberger passes. It was absolutely an atrocious game plan. And there's two things they have to do. Number one, Stick with the run, even if the run is not working right away. That's one of the things. What do you think Jacksonville is going to do when they approach this game? How are we going to beat the Steelers? What are we going to need to do defensively? Their number one priority is going to be we have to stop Le'Veon Bell in the run game. We have to stop the run. We have to do the same thing we did last year, which is make Ben Roth or last, seat, last time they played, week five, whatever. We have to do the same thing, which is make Ben Roethlisberger pass the football. So if you're the Steelers, you have to realize this is what they want us to do because their pass defense is so good. We need to continue trying to run the ball and not let up. That's number one. Number two is if we're running the ball and they keep stuffing us, we need to continue to not go away from the run in the second and the third quarters. But we also need to get Le'Veon Bell more touches, and that could be through the passing game. And Jacksonville has a massive weakness to running backs through the, uh, out of the backfield. We talked about this a little bit with, um, the, in the prior game. It's even worse here for the, Pittsburgh, uh, for the Jacksonville Jaguars defense. They are very bad. When you talk about when the game is within one score, and that's one of the things that you could do up at Sharp Football Stats is filter by scoring margin. If, if you're way behind against Jacksonville – they come up and snuff your running back passes because they know with how good of a pass rush they have, you're not going to have much time to throw the ball deep down the field against them if you're trailing by a big margin. So they, they can sit with their guys. they got a great secondary, and they just come up and stuff the running back passes. But when the game is close within one score, they're one of the worst teams in the NFL at allowing success to opposing running backs. The Steelers are the second-best team at – success rate two running backs in one score situations when they're passing the ball. Le'Veon Bell, obviously a magician in space. They absolutely must continue to use Le'Veon Bell early and often in this game. Um, it's going to come down to how much pressure is applied to Ben Roethlisberger. But when we're talking about the Steelers on offense, what they have to do to win, it's a lot of the game plan revolves around Le'Veon Bell. It absolutely must. Um, and 
you know, the Steelers are this team that just seems to think like with Todd Haley, like let's just let our guys go out and play. Let's do what we do um, when they really should be adapting and adopting a more uh, Bill Belichick type approach to their philosophy offensively and attack the weaknesses of their opponents. And while the Jacksonville run defense is not as bad as it was when they met earlier in the year because they added Darius, uh, they still are much weaker there than they are in the passing game. And the Steelers need to just ride Le'Veon Bell as far as he'll take them, in my opinion. Well, this is a conversation we've had several times throughout the year. You know, just because we think something's a good idea doesn't mean that the coaching staff will agree or will want to execute in that way. Or maybe, who knows, maybe we don't know as much as they know. But at the end of the day, I think it makes perfect sense what you're saying as far as riding Levy on Bell. Until they can't ride him anymore in this matchup, and hopefully that's what they do. If you take him in DFS, I expect him to be one of the highest owned plays on all sides. Chris, let's take a look at the Jacksonville offense. It's Blake Bortles cheap on DFS sites. It's the wide receiver core now four deep. And keep in mind, this is a group that doesn't have Allen Robinson right now. I mean, they've got some talent in this wide receiver core for sure. And then, uh, of course, Leonard Fournette pricing down a little bit after some poor performances. How do you expect Jacksonville to attack this Pittsburgh defense? And do you expect anybody in particular to have success in doing so? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, I'll start by saying, you know, since this is kind of a Vegas-based show and we've been talking about this all year, um, the same article I referred to earlier where they kind of interviewed one of the, the odds makers and, uh, in Vegas, uh, his comment about this game was that uh, the, the real true line that, that they had was uh, Pittsburgh by six and a half, but they opened it at a touchdown. And I, I thought that was interesting because, you know, that's kind of, you know, I know it's not as much of a key number, you know, with all the different extra point rules and stuff, but I mean, it's still a key number of seven. So I thought that was a little interesting, but uh, I think that, I think that the public is going to be a little more down on Jacksonville than they probably should be because, um, you know, at, at the way Blake Bortles played last week. But I, I don't know. I think that the narrative has got, gone a little too far. I think that this is just it, the same thing that's true of Blake Bortles is true of a lot of players in the NFL, which is that they are pretty solid some weeks and pretty bad other weeks. Like there's only there can only be so many stars in this league. So I don't think that necessarily, oh, oh, my God, just because Blake Bortles missed a bunch of throws last week that he's going to come out and play horribly this week. I mean, you know, before the complaint was always that, oh, well, Blake Bortles, he's horrible because he's always throwing these pick sixes and he's turning the ball over. Okay, well, this year, you know, he, he, he kept the interceptions in check for the most part. He had, a, you know, a couple bad games. But, you know, last week he did what he had to do to get a win. I mean, he, he didn't turn the ball over. He ran when he needed to. And he threw the game-winning touchdown. So on, on fourth down. So, um, you know, I, I, think that, I think that, you know, Pittsburgh, they come into this game, they're actually ranked uh, 28th, bottom five, and schedule-adjusted fantasy points allowed to quarterbacks. I think there are some vulnerabilities here. Um, I think that Leonard Fournette, they're, first and foremost, they're going to they're gonna try to feed Leonard Fournette. And the, this Pittsburgh uh, run defense has been, uh, you know, kind of getting eaten up without Ryan Shazier. They rank uh, 30th in run defense uh, success rate uh, since sh in, the, in the games where sh where Shazier uh, since he's been out so that they've really struggled in the run game but I think in the passing game it's interesting and it's going to kind of it might be important for DFS especially on the two games late because you know there's only so many options so you might need to hit on one of these Jaguars pass catchers to take down a tournament at least you know you don't you don't need to do anything in cash games but I think that Marquise Lee and D.D. Westbrook are the two guys that are going to be the most uh, targeted players in this game. And the reason is because 
if you look at Pittsburgh and you try to break it down by, okay, where on the field have they been weak in terms of defending the pass? Well, they have the, uh, they're ranked in the top five in efficiency in the middle and the right. No, that's the offensive middle and the offensive right, but they're number 30th to the left. That's where Marquise Lee has gotten the most targets for him and of the Jaguars. So that's, that's a player that I, I expect to, to be heavily involved in this game, especially to the short left area of the field, which is Lee's most targeted area. And um, the, the Pittsburgh is also weak on the deep sideline. So 15, more than 15 yards down the field on the left and on the right. And that's where both Lee and D.D. Westbrook have done the most work and, caught, and, and had the most targets throughout the course of the season. So I think those two guys are going to be the, the, the two guys that I would expect to have uh, the most success. Last week, I think it was kind of a unique situation. Uh, Buffalo a lot weaker on run defense. I think that the plan was just to, to run on them. And if you look at where Blake Bortles threw the football, he, I believe he, I don't think he, he barely targeted, if at all, the two outside corners for Buffalo uh, Gaines and Travis White, and he also didn't really target any the safeties either, and, and that's that's because Buffalo has a strong secondary. So Bortles pretty much exclusively targeted uh, the slot corner Leonard Johnson in that game, and he targeted uh, the linebackers. And that that what that tells me is that the Jaguars are at least doing you know coming into the game with a plan of attacking a defensive weakness, which like Warren alluded to, we don't always know if the Steelers are really doing or not. But um, so in this game, yeah, I think it's, you know, if if they're going to kind of carry that mentality into this game, you target that offensive left, which is where Artie Burns, who got a little banged up in practice, looks like he's going to play. But he's been he's kind of had his struggles this season, which is why they are 30th in efficiency. At one point, they were talking about potentially benching him for uh, rookie Cameron Sutton. So I think that's an area that Jack, the Jacksonville Jaguars will look to exploit when they go to the air. And, uh, and they'll try to take some shots with Westbrook if they need to. But Lee is a guy that they wanted to get the ball in his hands all year. They love to run him on crossing routes. And I think because he wasn't fully healthy last week, they didn't really implement him into the game plan. But I wouldn't be surprised if his snap rate jumped back up to, to, to you know, close to 100%. And maybe, you know, uh, maybe some of those other guys, Cole or Alan Hearns, not, gets knocked down a little bit. But um, I think that's what you're going to see. I think you're going to see Fournette. I think you're going to see Lee. I think you're going to see Westbrook. And, uh, and it just now comes down to how well the Jaguars' defense can play uh, in limiting Pittsburgh because I think you can could, you could kind of go contrarian a little bit in, in a couple of ways in DFS. Number one, you can go Leonard Fournette stack with the Jags' defense in the case of you know, them, you know, them playing well against Pittsburgh, a team that, you know, let's be real, Pittsburgh rested their starters in week 17. They had a bye. So they haven't played, in, they haven't played together in three weeks. Uh, Antonio Brown hasn't played with them in a month. He's not practicing the day before the game. And this is a team that has consistently played down to their competition in Mike Tomlin's tenure. So, uh, you know, I think you could go contrarian with the Fournette to Jaguars D stack, or you can go contrarian with the Bortles to, let's say, Marquise Lee or Westbrook or both stack in the event of, you know, things kind of going more according to plan on Pittsburgh side, but you can kind of maybe stack Le'Veon Bell with, with a Bortles stack and say, okay, if Bell's having success and if Bell reaches the end zone once or twice, that means that the Jaguars will probably have to pass the ball on the other side at some point. So I think those are the two angles that you want to take with the Jaguars offense, but it's harder to really project much for Mercedes Lewis or the tight ends because Pittsburgh is number one in tight end DVOA. It's hard to really get too excited about Alan Hearns because his – 
he's only he, he has the lowest deep target percentage on the team, and he's not getting enough volume in the short game to really, you know, uh, be valuable in DFS. And then Keelan Cole is just kind of that wild card where he's played well, so you know we could always see him kind of reemerge. But he's the wild card. But I, I think that you know Fournette, Lee, and and Westbrook are the are the top three plays in this game for for Jacksonville. If you're going to make the case for the Jags on the road as touchdown underdogs, you better bring the effing thunder. And I'm pretty sure you did just that, Chris. So uh, I'm not saying you made the case necessarily for them, but certainly for their offense being uh, able to have some success here in this spot, you did a great job of that. So I'm definitely going to have to go back and re-listen to this to make sure that I take some pretty good notes on that. That was some good stuff there. Uh, We have just one more game left on the 2017-2018 season here, guys. So let's head out to Minnesota where it is the – New Orleans Saints facing the Minnesota Vikings. It looks like the Vikings are now five-point favorites on Pinnacle, 46-and-a-half total. When you take a look at the ticket count versus the money on this one more, it looks like 64% of the tickets on the New Orleans Saints, but 62% of the money on the Minnesota Vikings. So that's interesting to me. Uh, let's talk first. Just, you know, it's Friday, of course. There's lots of time to go before uh, they close up shop there in the betting markets. But let's take a look at this. You know, from just a pure uh, you know, game perspective, the Vikings come in with one of the best defenses in the league with an offense that has been pretty efficient for most of the season. Uh, Latavius Murray uh, looking a lot better than he's looked in recent years running the football. And then, of course, they've got a complimentary back uh, with McKinnon to go right along with him. They've got some awesome receivers, and Case Keenum has done an adequate job uh, filling in for the injured Sam Bradford throughout the entire season. So, you know, I'm hard-pressed to find something I don't like about the Vikings as a team here. Do you think that it's enough for them to get past this uh, New Orleans team? And specifically, how do you think they might do it on offense? Uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, let's talk about it holistically from the betting perspective, just like as this game portrays to, like, with regard to the overall weekend. This is probably the most attractive underdog that's out there. Um, we talked about, you know, the most attractive underdog that was out there um, last week. There was uh, at the last game of the of the weekend. It was the Carolina Panthers going against these New Orleans Saints. Um, you know, this is the last game of the entire weekend. Um, and on our last show, we kind of we kind of uh, alluded to the fact that sometimes, um, you know, those they those do or don't work out. In that case, like the Carolina Panthers were able to come back into that game. Um, and cover the point spread. Now they had uh, a better line than this, you know, all obviously catching a touchdown, basically. Uh, some, some shops had six and a half. Um, the difference being, though, you know, the Saints defense versus the Vikings defense. Uh, and in this one, that's where I'll start with, because when we talk about the Saints defense, um, I'm, I'm big on, like, myth-busting and breaking, like, conceptions. Um and, you know, this is a narrative that a lot of people have bought into the Saints defense, and they won't like me saying this, but I'm just going to share what the facts are. Um, this team started out great, but in hindsight, let's look at some of these passing offenses that they faced in order to get to that level. Because, like, through the first 10 weeks, after they absolutely depleted the Buffalo Bills at home 47-10, to 10, sorry, Chris, uh, 
you know, they, they were basically talked about as having like one of the best defenses out there and, um, you know, great passing defense. And obviously everybody is big on uh, Lattimore. But let's just go ahead and think about this for a second. They played a week three Cam Newton who is recovering. Uh, he obviously was not the same to start the year as he was to end the year. They played then Jay Cutler in London, with, which was Jay Cutler's um, since he missed week one. His, his, uh, only his third game with the Miami Dolphins over in London. They played – they had a bye. They played the Detroit Lions, and Detroit put up 38 points against them, a, a number that would win most games except for Drew Brees and some help from his defense, put up 52 points against them in that victory. So Matthew Stafford, you kind of have to put him in a totally separate bucket here because he was somewhat productive against this defense. We're talking about the teams that the Saints had much more success over. Then they faced Brett Hundley and Brett Hundley's first start. Obviously, we know how Hundley's season went. They hosted Mitchell Trubisky, one of the most difficult environments for a quarterback to play in as a true rookie. They hosted him. Then they played the combination of Jameis Winston, who got injured, placed Ryan Fitzpatrick. Then they played the combination of uh, Tyrod Taylor, who was ultimately replaced by Nathan Peterman. That's what helped propel the Saints passing defense to the kind of the upper echelon. Everybody's talking about, wow, look how much these guys have improved. But over the next four weeks prior to facing Bryce Petty, who was getting one of, I think it was his first start um, down in New Orleans, another quarterback without much experience making his first start in New Orleans. Um, those four weeks in between there, this team actually ranked dead last in terms of their explosive pass rate allowed. They allowed a ton of uh, explosive passes from the Redskins, the Rams. That's really no mystery. The Rams are good, but also the Carolina Panthers and the Atlanta Falcons. Now, I think we've gotten a little bit overboard with the way that the Saints are playing of late because um, they did have two games against Atlanta. And Atlanta, they are just not the same explosive passing team that we've seen in years past, like last year, for example. And if you can take away Julio, that offense really struggles overall. Um, and, you know, they put Lattimore and Julio and kind of try, were able to limit him to extent. The last few weeks they played that sort of – I don't want to say neutered, but if you take away Julio from that offense, um, you are neutering an element of it. They played the Jets with Bryce Petty. They lost to the Bucks, who put up 31 points against them, and they had to battle close to the end with the Carolina Panthers, who, if you look at who they have, sort of a somewhat hobbled, Funches, they Olsen played much better than I thought he was going to play, at least based on what he had done, um, you know, the last several weeks heading into that game. And of course, Christian McCaffrey caught a couple balls at really long run where he uh, housed it late to bring the game much closer. Um, they didn't. They just don't have nearly the level of weapons that the Minnesota Vikings have from both a running and a passing perspective. So, um, you know, the the New Orleans Saints look. The other thing that's affected them, not just a great schedule to start the year, but a lot of injuries to that defense that they've suffered. A number of starters have gone out, no longer playing, and a lot of key backups have also been injured and are not going to be able to play in this game. So I'm, I'm personally a little bit down on this Saints defense. Now, the matchup I'm most intrigued by is on the other side of the ball, which I'll let Chris talk more about that. But I think the Vikings are going to have enough success here. So I actually like the Vikings in this spot. Um, I think their defense, everybody gets very scared of the Saints offense. But if Michael Thomas gets limited to an extent, and if that run game is less productive, which we saw last week, the run game not there, 
Um, Drew Brees, is, it's, everything's going to fall onto his shoulders. The offensive line has to provide enough pass pro, which that's the one weakness of the Minnesota Vikings is their pass rush has really not been there quite as much as we'd expect. They're basically top five in all their other metrics, but they're 18th in pass rush efficiency. So they struggle in that perspective. Uh, if Drew Brees has enough time, he can find his other guys and make hay there because two of the things that – uh, the Minnesota Vikings defense should be able to limit to an extent Michael Thomas as well as running backs out of the backfield such as Alvin Kamara because they're very good at defending those two elements and that's two of the better elements that the Saints have going for them from the passing game um, so it's going to be some gin it's going to be some other guys that are going to have to step up but all in all um, I think there's a lot to like about Minnesota's offense going up against a Saints defense that I think um if you're buying them now, you're sort of buying them on a downward trajectory. They were at their best when they were healthier and playing some of these weaker passing offenses and beat up teams and that sort of thing earlier in the year. I think they're kind of headed headed uh, downhill right now. Did I hear correctly that neither one of those safeties made the Pro Bowl on the first ballot? I'm not sure, Chris. You know? uh, I don't pay attention to that too much, but if that's the case, I mean, that's just disturbing. I mean, those guys yeah. played so well all season long. They've got playmakers – at every level on defense. So I was just trying to maybe exacerbate your point that, you know, they've got some of the tools it would take to control backs out of the backfield and, uh, and certainly uh, the tools to control a guy like Michael Thomas, so, you know, Xavier Rhodes. Uh, Thomas is good enough that he could get by almost any cornerback at, at, at certain spots. But if you talk about floor and ceiling, uh, is the opportunity for Michael Thomas to ceiling lower or higher based on his matchup with Xavier Rhodes? I would say it is lower. Chris, when you take a look at the other side of the ball here, and we're talking about the New Orleans Saints offense, I just mentioned, uh, you know, well, really, you can just talk about both offenses if you want to here, but just you know, let's start with the Saints offense here. I mentioned Thomas being in a potentially negative spot here. If uh, Warren's correct that the backside of the backfield will struggle, I mean, how are they going to get it done? Yeah, it's a, it's a lot to unpack with the Saints offense, and I, I'll just say that I think this is one of one of the games I've been most excited about in the NFL over the, the last few years because I think it's a, an excellent offensive coach in Sean Payton going against an excellent defensive coach in Mike Zimmer, and I'm just really excited to see how the chess match play out between both of those guys because, as you both alluded to, I think it's going to come down to can the Saints – score points on the Vikings defense because I don't think the Saints are going to be able to completely shut Minnesota's offense down in Minnesota even though you know a lot of people may make a case for the Saints as the underdog because it's Drew Brees versus Case Keenum now Sean Payton has to figure out how to make that matchup actually uh, get in their favor how to expose that matchup and how to put Brees in that passing offense in a in a good spot to succeed so if you look at Michael Thomas going against uh, better pass defenses this season. So in, in week one, they played Minnesota. Now, Xavier Rhodes did not shadow in that game. I believe he only covered Thomas on nine routes. But Michael Thomas only had 45 yards in that game. That was one of his lowest of the season. And uh, one of the only three times that he was under 65 yards. So in that game, when he was under 45 yards, four other Saints pass catchers had between 50 and 55 yards. Uh, most notably, Ted Ginn uh, had 53 yards more than Michael Thomas. You know, he had more yards than Michael Thomas. Then you go to the next time when Thomas struggled, which was in week six against the Detroit Lions in a game where Darius Slay, uh, the, one, of the good, uh, one of the better corners in the league, shadowed Thomas. He was held to three catches on six targets for only 11 yards. In that game, Ted Ginn spiked again with 66 yards and a touchdown. Now, he only got four targets, but 
uh, you know, he, his production spiked in a game where, where Thomas kind of struggled. And then you go to the week 12 game where they went to LA to play the Rams and Tremaine Johnson shadowed Thomas in that game. Thomas was again held to only 52 yards in that game. And you saw Ted uh, Ginn spike in that game as well with 11 targets, seven catches for 71 yards. So I think that Ted Ginn is going to be kind of an X factor uh, in terms of he's going to have to probably make plays in single coverage on Trey Waynes or make plays in the, against the zone coverage against the safeties, which is going to be, might be difficult for him, but they're going to have to figure out ways to get him the ball a little bit, because I think that, you know, at least it's, it's not, it's not looking good for Thomas on paper to, to have a lot of success. And, you know, then you look at the, the way the Vikings have played against running backs and it's kind of absurd how well they've played against pass catching running backs this season, I mean, if you just go back to the the, the early uh, part of the season, you have you had Mark Ingram catch five balls for fifty four yards in week one. No running back had more than that 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 production against them for the rest of the season, more than fifty four yards. They held Alvin Kamara to twenty yards on six targets. They held Le'Veon Bell the very next week to four yards on four targets. Then, you know, uh, Buck Allen, 20, uh, 29 yards on 11 targets. Uh, you know, you had Todd Gurley, you know, we know how much work he did in the receiving game this year, 19 yards on four targets. Uh, it was really absurd. Christian McCaffrey, 18 yards on four targets. So this is a situation where on paper, Minnesota can also stop th- those pass catchers, which again, points to guys like Ted Ginn. But I will say this. I think that the one X factor here is Alvin Kamara in this game because besides again, because you can't really, you know, they, they held him to 20 yards on six targets, but that was back in week one when there was still that, that three man rotation with Adrian Peterson was working in. They hadn't really kind of turned the offense over to Kamara yet. And of course it was just his first game. He's inexperienced, but I think that you can't just apply what Minnesota has done against running backs to Kamara at this point because he's just so movable and Sean Payton is so creative that I think that that's really the player that he's going to want to feature in this game. I think last week the Ingram and Kamara combined for only 21 touches, but that we, 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 we talked about this on the show repeatedly down the stretch. Carolina's pass defense was incredibly shaky particularly at the cornerback position, Daryl Worley and, and James Bradbury were struggling. So Sean Payton came out and said, okay, you know, Carolina has a pretty solid run defense, pretty good linebackers on that second level. Let's throw on them. Let's throw, let's, let's attack the perimeter. In this game, I don't think you necessarily want to do that when you're going against, you know, Harrison Smith back there and you have Sandejo and you have Xavier Rhodes and whatnot. So in this game, I think you're, you, he's going to have to feature Kamara a lot more and figure out creative ways to get him the ball in space. And I think that's exactly what he'll do. And now it just depends on can Kamara continue to do what he's done all season, which is slither out of impossible tackles of impossible hooking situations where he should just be tackled because Minnesota's a very sound defense. You know, Warren mentioned that their pass rush is, is merely average and that, and, and but what they do to combat that is they just play extremely sound defense. If, even if you, it even shows up in their uh, fantasy defense, special teams, points where they've only scored in double digits three times all season and two of those times came against the Packers with Punley playing uh, most of one game and, and all of the other so this is a team that just kind of sits back plays sound fundamental defense and I think the one player that really can uh, kind of you know uh, offset that is Kamara just simply 
making plays. And so if I'm looking for a tournament play outside of Ted Ginn, who I think will you know, kind of see another spike in at least volume, it just depends on whether he actually has success, which could go either way. But I think Kamara is the one guy where he could just kind of, you know, kind of throw, you know, fly in the face of everything on paper where it looks, it looks like a really tough matchup for him. But I think you could see him get, you know, a ton of catches out of the backfield or I think they could, I think you might see them go with kind of Ingram and Kamara in, in a bunch of, you know, both of those guys on the field a lot and maybe use Kamara more as a wide receiver, split him out, do a lot of things. Cause I, I just really think that Sean Payton is, is gonna, is, he's gonna know that he needs to, to, to find a way to manufacture uh, offense and I think I think Kamar is the still their best bet even though on paper the matchup looks really tough. Yeah, excellent stuff there. Uh, we didn't really mention the Vikings wide receivers too much here in this spot. Uh, Warren, I'll throw it to you first with regards to Diggs. Uh, do you have any interest personally as far as what you think his matchup looks like here? You know, going up against uh, what could be either Marshawn Lattimore or Ken Crowley. Um. I don't. I mean, Chris would be uh, probably a better guy to talk to about that. But I will say that I like uh, feeling a little bit more if he, you know, can can slide out away from Lattimore. But I also wonder, you know, this is just the way that I'm thinking of this game, like from a game script perspective, um, how, how much Minnesota will be throwing late in this game as opposed to relying on the run game. Um, and I think that there are some edges for them to, uh, if they have a a lead to be able to just rely on the run game. So a lot of this one, in my opinion, will come down to game script because I don't see the Vikings in a game when you're playing Drew Brees on the other side, if you're fortunate enough to have a lead, um, you want to still be productive, but, uh, and if that results in seven, so be it. But the Vikings, though some of their games have been lopsided, you know, they're perfectly fine with winning 24 to seven, 14 to nine. I mean, these are scores against two very good offenses, the Rams and the, uh, Falcons earlier this year so uh, I don't see them putting up you know 30 plus points unless they're challenged heavily um, or unless the Saints turn the ball over a lot which really isn't like them so um, I think if they are fortunate to have a lead they're going to um, I, I think get a lot of work out of Latavius Murray and I also uh, think that uh, Kyle Rudolph is intriguing in this game. Yeah, good stuff there Chris I'm a certified Adam Thielen fanboy so last take of the season here Guy only got four touchdowns on the season, yet has continued to produce each and every week with the help of volume. Is Adam Thielen getting in the box this week? And if he's not, do you think he is worth rostering at relatively, I would say relatively low, like maybe mid-level ownership in DFS? Yeah, I think I think he's certainly worth rostering. I mean, you could make a case, I think a pretty decent case that that Thielen is the best play on the slate. I mean, depending on how you feel about Julio Jones, just in terms of the fact that he, he also has struggled to score touchdowns and, you know, the Falcons offense has just been kind of shaky. I mean, they're also, you know, they're, they're also kind of going against a situation where it could be a low scoring game as well. I mean, Adam Thielen caught seven passes for 146 yards in the slot alone in the first meeting. And if he's going to go in a slot, I mean, Marshawn Lattimore has only spent 22 snaps in the slot all season. And Ken Crawley's not going in a slot either. So it's if, if they're going to get him back in the slot, he's going to have a matchup to to exploit yet again. I think Diggs, Diggs will have the tougher matchup. I'm not sure if they're going to feel like they want to shadow him with Marshawn Lattimore, just play straight up because, you know, Ken Crawley can, can, run with, can run with him as well. So I don't 
I don't know necessarily exactly what they're going to do, but I would think that that they're that 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 Thielen either way has a great matchup. I mean, he's caught five balls in thirteen of sixteen games. He's still got a a, a very healthy uh, red zone target share, even though you mentioned he hasn't always it hasn't always paid off. So. I think I think Thielen's in a great spot. I, I do favor Thielen over Diggs, and I agree with Warren as well. I think Kyle Rudolph is a tight end. That I, for, for example, I'd play Kyle Rudolph over Delaney Walker. I know that uh, some people are kind of weaning Walker just because he gets a little more volume, a little more air yards, and that's usually the way I favor. You know, I kind of try to get those air yards because you get one kind of good air yard completion, and it can offset even some 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 low volume. But in this situation with the Titans kind of going on the road and in a situation where you never know what Belichick's thinking because he has the good outside matchups, he might, he might be able to kind of take away, you know, trying to scheme to take away Walker. I, I like Rudolph in this spot. And just like I liked Olsen in the spot last week, even though the Saints had pretty good uh, uh, defensive stats against tight ends on the season, those stats are kind of hard to, to go by because every team's tight ends are so different and depending where they line up. But uh, Rudolph, he he has one of the uh, he has one of the highest red zone uh, target shares amongst tight ends. I believe he's number three in the league on his team uh, this season among tight ends in terms of targets in the red zone. So I think you're you're just kind of chase if you're not going with Gronk, you're just kind of chasing that touchdown with with the cheaper tight ends. And I think Rudolph at home with, with Minnesota kind of being expected to score uh, a good amount of points. I think it's the second highest implied total on the slate as we record this. Uh, you know as we do this. So I, I'm, I like Rudolph. I, I think Thielen is is a great play because you know even if Minnesota is not necessarily having to throw late in the game and they've kind of they kind of have a lead I mean Thielen's a like you say you're a fanboy he's a very good receiver he's he's not a guy that he needs game script necessarily to pay off he's just a good receiver who is going to be involved every time they drop back to pass and um and and I guess we should also talk about Jarek McKinnon who uh, he's actually been losing touches to Murray over these past few weeks. Now, some of that might be game script induced, but McKinnon, you know, f- from week six to 13, which is kind of after Galvin Cook went down and they were kind of adjusting to this new two headed monster at, at running back, uh, Murray only got about one, a little average, about a little over one more touch per game than McKinnon. But over these last four weeks, uh, Murray's averaging about seven more touches per game than McKinnon. So, I think you I think McKinnon is the guy, kind of guy that if you kind of want to stack with somebody on the Saints, where I think McKinnon is a, is is you're going to see more work for him in the passing game. I think that's the guy where it's like this would be better for him if they were throwing at the end of the game. That would set up better for McKinnon. Whereas Thielen, I think he's he's a good play either way. Um, but but I do like Latavius Murray a lot in this game. If it if it goes according to plan, if it goes according to the way you think it's going to go, I think Murray uh, could end up leading that team in uh fantasy points and if it if it doesn't then i think you're gonna probably see Thielen and and and, pro- and uh and, and mckinnon and rudolph guys thank you thank you thank you so much for all of your hard work throughout the season warren where can we find you both in the next couple of weeks and throughout the off season what can we expect to see from you until we meet again next football season um yeah uh first of all one last thing on this past week this weekend's games i really hope because i love this weekend so much that we have all the younger quarterbacks, okay? You've been with your team for a couple weeks, like Nick Foles, or for more of the season, um, but you don't have as much playoff experience. Like, lead your team like you led them in some of your best wins. Like, I hope there's a lot of psychology going on with the uh, coaching staff to build these guys up. I, It's going to be hard. You're playing four great teams. 
um, you know, those, those young quarterbacks, four great teams and some better quarterbacks too. You're not going to be able to, um, I think, hide your quarterback completely and expect to win this game. You're going to need your quarterback to come out and play well. So I really hope the offensive coordinators dial up some things early enough to get them involved in the game. Um, I hope that they don't make mistakes early and then the team just goes away from them late because that's going to be a problem as well. So I just hope that, uh, I mean, because this weekend really could hinge if these guys throw up total eggs and just are terrible. Uh, it's not going to make the weekend very fun or very competitive. So I really hope they play well. Um, one last thing on Adam Thielen, which plays into where I'm going to be, what I'm going to be doing uh, once the season ends. Uh, I had him as my uh, the, the wide receiver that I liked most over expectation. He was being drafted when I wrote my 2017 football preview as wide receiver number 50. Um, and he was like the first one that I listed in the book as wide receivers that I liked this year. Um, I'm going to be working on the book uh, pretty much. It is a labor of love. It takes um, like three, four solid months of literally as hard as I'm working during the season on analyzing every single week. I pour that into uh, this book and that'll come out probably again in July. There's some, I got some excited, uh, exciting opportunities and ideas with the book this year. So um, could be, could be some other upgrades to it, but uh, I'm really looking forward to that. So that would be in July, probably on Amazon uh, being sold again. And, uh, and then I'm obviously breaking down, you know, getting ready for the football season after that. But until then uh, it's playoffs for me. I'm not the type of, even though I'm um, what you call a handicapper or whatnot, uh, I'm not the type of guy who then says, oh, hey, it's basketball season. Let me start handicapping basketball or something like that. I NFL 24-7, I do college football totals, uh, but I don't really do college football sides whatsoever. So, um, And during the offseason, all I focus on is the NFL. So uh, you'll be able to find me at Sharp Football Stats, um, updating some of the visualizations. We're going to do a, a – redo of some of the things on the site to make it even cleaner, more user-friendly. Um, and I'm excited about that. I'm excited about working on the book. So uh, a lot of things on my plate. Uh, you'll be able to stay in touch with me on, on Twitter though, as well. Uh, again, thanks again for sharing all that and everything you've done here on the show. It's been my pleasure, Chris, where can we find you over the summer here and uh, you know, talk a little about four for four, because you know, we, we, we kind of glance over it every single week, all the great stuff you have over there, but I haven't really given you the platform to just talk it up because it's really, it's really some good stuff for football. Oh, definitely. Uh, you know, you guys can, if you, if you haven't heard, you know, it's 444.com, the number four, the letters F-O-R, the number four.com. And uh, we actually have early bird rates about to go up for next year's DFS subscription. We have a lot of unique metrics on the site that have helped a lot of people um, win money this year, uh, GPP leverage scores. Uh, we, we calculate the probability of players hitting both cash and GPP value uh, on DraftKings and FanDuel. Um, a, lot of, a lot of other interesting things that we're going to be doing in the offseason. Um, also, for anybody listening in the, in the industry, anybody over at Grinders, uh, I will be at FSTA out in LA. Uh, I guess that's next week or in about 10 days or so. So come check me out there. Send me a tweet or a DM if you want to link up there. And, um, but yeah, you know, check out 44, check me out, check me out on Twitter at Chris Raybon and, uh, I'll keep you guys updated there on, got some things working for the summer. I'll be working on some things uh, behind the scenes, which, uh, I'll let you guys uh, know a little later on, but 
yeah, just keep keep up with me there. And uh, I'll probably uh, I'll, I'll be playing some NBA DFS. Um, you know, I like to I, I love basketball as well. Um, it's not NFL is always my kind of first love, but uh, I definitely think the NBA is in a great place right now in terms of just the, the, the talent on the floor. And so I love to kind of jump in and, and get a couple solid months in of, of some NBA DFS to, to build up that bankroll again for, for this next NFL season. Yeah, and of course, if you want to play some NBA DFS or some PGA DFS or some MLB DFS or even, you know, we've, of course, we've got great stuff at Rotor Grinders for NFL DFS as well. Lots of great articles, including a free article from Chris uh, that he writes for us each week, which has been great. Obviously, lots of premium media, premium content. We've got a wide receiver cornerback matchup tool. We've got some great uh, long-form written takes from JM to win as far as a weekly breakdown from a DFS perspective. And, of course, there's all kinds of great stuff. You can get at RG Premium, uh, all the sports uh, over here for one price per site. So please come check us out at RG Premium. That's going to do it for the year. For Warren Sharp, for Chris Raybon, I'm Chris Gimino. God willing, we'll see you again next season.